and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Lucinda Johnson, Investment Director from Tilney's Birmingham office, and I'm talking with Chris Godding, our Chief Investment Officer, and Ben Seeger-Scott, our Head of Head of Multi-Asset Funds, about the current market volatility as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and what the outlook for the future might be. Uh, we're recording this podcast, obviously, from our homes today. And before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Thank you both for joining us today. Um, I hope you're not going to stir crazy in your own homes. Um, I thought we'd kick off with, uh, with just a, a little bit of a, a summary about sort of the situation in markets at the moment um, and, uh, and your thoughts on that. Chris, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, hi Lucy. Um, thanks for that. Uh, not not quite crazy yet, but the um, the markets have definitely had some moments in the last month or so. We have seen the UK equity index fall twenty five percent from the highs of mid Jan, and then um, it's basically eight percent off the low um, that we saw on March twenty third. So quite a lot of volatility. The MSCI World is off twenty one percent after being down 26% at the uh, at the low on the same day. Um, so the 23rd of March was uh, a pretty uh, big selling off, sell-off day. And it was so rapid. Uh, and the reason that the peaked in that, that, that period was that the markets were really struggling with liquidity, uh, which made rational price discovery very difficult. Basically, finding the bids and the offers in the market um, became increasingly hard. And um, markets tend to overshoot in that kind of environment. Um, in the reaction, we had some pretty massive intervention in terms of uh, uh, from governments and from central banks, um, emergency spending packages, cutting interest rates, providing liquidity, most importantly for the markets, providing liquidity and supporting some of the more distressed asset classes such as corporate debt. And that helped restore some stability and it alleviated the stress um, slightly in the market, so we could find a more rational pricing uh, across the board. And just to give you an, an example of the scale of the spending uh, that we're seeing from from governments, the um, in the Congress approved the uh, Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, uh, which is aptly named, uh, what the acronym is CARES, uh, and that amounted to $2.2 trillion dollars or 10% of US GDP. And it also included a $290 billion cash handout to every citizen, uh, which was worth about $1,500 each. There are obviously some pretty big numbers, Chris. Um, Do you think this stimulus package is enough to to get us through this? Well, um, it's it's a good question. Uh, We won't know until after, but basically, according to Deutsche Bank, the combined monetary and fiscal stimulus of Europe from Europe and the US alone 
is a staggering $12.8 trillion, or 30% of the combined GDPs of those two blocks, economic blocks. So um, without, um, without any degree of certainty, but I would say broadly speaking, I would say yes, I believe the institutions of government and, um, and the central bank, uh, central banks across the world have done enough in an incredibly short amount of time um, and we're also you know, seeing more packages on the way. The U.S. Congress is also considering another 500 billion after Easter. And uh, you know what we what we have seen, I think, importantly, is very likely avoided a global depression scenario, i.e., a, a sustained recession um, similar to 1929, where policy mistakes compounded uh, the the problem. Um, so. The response essentially limits the probability of a secondary demand shock by keeping most of the businesses uh, in, in, in the economy solvent through the crisis, uh, depending on the duration, and helping those unable to work, i.e. employees unable to work, with the furlough payments uh, to tide them over. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be very hard. Um, but it's much, much better than the alternative. So what can we expect now? Are we going to be locked in our, host, in our homes for the foreseeable future? Or is there light at the end of the tunnel? Well, that is the um, $64,000 question. Um, and you know, I, I think uh, I would defer to my colleague, Ben, who is, who is actually a doctor of biology. So he's probably more qualified to talk about it than me, and um, and uh, and the you know t- I will c- then come back and talk about the the economic scenarios that we're considering. Uh, ben, uh, thank you, Chris. It's certainly been a long time since I've I've been in a lab, but um, obviously it's something we're we're watching pretty closely, and there are all sorts of different factors uh, that that go into to these the, these points to consider. Um, and there is also a huge amount of unknown. And really, a lot of what we're doing now is how you manage with both the, you know, the colloquialism, dealing with the, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. Um, but I think really at the moment, and, and talking specifically about the lockdown, all governments are trying to get this balance right between looking after public health and balancing that uh, against the needs of the economy. And the most acute problem at the moment really has been preventing a complete collapse of the health service. In fact, before the lockdown uh, was implemented, particularly in the UK, there's some research by Imperial College London. They did some modelling that suggested, and many people have seen um, some quite quite scary charts, that suggested that the uh, intensive care units across the country could rapidly be completely overwhelmed by, by several times over. And that's really what prompted uh, the lockdown. And I think it's encouraging from that point of view that updated modelling by that same group suggests now, perhaps with the new measures in place, we can avoid uh, avoid the NHS being completely overwhelmed. So from that point of view, uh, the, the, the approach has been, uh, has been right. And I think what's interesting, the key metric to watch is really the number of new confirmed cases and fatalities. And because this is a geometric progression, um, sadly, it does mean each and every day, particularly while we're still in the growth phase, we will see ever larger numbers, um, particularly reported on the news. I think what's more important, though, is not to look at the absolute numbers, it's to look at that rate of change. And within that, it's the fatality rate that is arguably more important. There's lots of different ways and methodologies for different 
government to implement how you record confirmed cases. But when there's a fatality, effectively, there's near uh, 100% reporting of that. Um, so against that lockdown and, and the ability of uh, governments to, to try and bring this uh, virus under control, that does need to be offset not only against the economic impacts, but the broad impacts on society. So in terms of when the lockdown could end, it's very difficult to know. The government is right that you can't put uh, an exact time frame on, but it does seem more likely that it's going to be weeks rather than months. Some of the research that we've seen, again, with a with a pinch of salt, but what you can do is look at other countries, particularly those further through uh, their outbreak, particularly countries in Asia and the likes of China. And if we do broadly seem to be following that level of model, that suggests in the UK, lockdown could end sometime around the 12th of April. Um, it's still likely that some restrictions will remain in place. And then we might see some more lightening up uh, in May. Some of that, though, is going to be dependent on how effective the lockdown measures are and particularly how much compliance there, there are with these lockdown measures. So does that mean we're, we're back to normal by the end of May? Is everything everything carries on as usual or will there still be restrictions in place that, that might impinge business over the coming months? Um, Unfortunately, I think it's very unlikely we'll be back to normal um, by sort of May, June time. Um, hopefully that the lockdowns will be lifted and some sense of normality will start to creep in. But I think the, the biggest problem is the second unknown. If it is a case that not overwhelming ICUs is the acute condition, then sort of the more chronic issue is just how we deal uh, with the unknown true scale, uh, both of the infection and the lethality. And one of the challenges is that the, the virus can spread, well, A, the fact it can spread before people have symptoms, but also many people have only mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. So it's simply unknown how, how much of this sort of stealth spreading has gone on. And the problem with lockdown, whilst it is effective for trying to help countries prevent their health systems being overwhelmed, suppression effectively just locks the virus down. And as you withdraw some of those lockdown measures, then you could start to see it being reintroduced. So it's going to be very interesting to see what's happening in places such as China. China's starting to, to reduce some of its lockdown measures, particularly in Wuhan. Wuhan province is going to see its lockdown measures relaxed starting around about the, the 8th of April. So it'll be interesting to see uh, what effect that has. But it is likely some measures will remain in effect. Social distancing and other me measures are probably going to be here for the foreseeable future. Ultimately, what the ultimately what the, the government is trying to do, there's there's this infection rate. You, you hear it a lot in the news now called R zero. This is how many people that someone that's infected, how many other people that they infect. And the current run rate is anywhere between two and four. Obviously, anything more than one. If there's one person infecting more than one other person, then that leads to growth. What the government's really trying to do is get that R number below one, meaningfully below one, would allow us to, to bring this back under control. Um, so it's likely to get back to some level of normality. We may see, given the, the long-standing nature of this uh, a sort of dialing up and dialing down of, of measures uh, in response to, to what we see out there in the real world, travel restrictions are likely to be with us for the foreseeable future, though. I think some of the concerns, if you have people coming in from other countries, perhaps with less stringent measures, then you could end up re-importing the virus. So I think travel restrictions are likely to be here for a while. So uh, I don't see anyone going on a cruise anytime soon. 
But really, I think the key here is going to be testing. It's been talked about a little bit, but that really is going to be the game changer, getting a better idea of what's going on. Because we haven't had effective testing or effective treatment, functionally, governments have had no choice but to implement the, the most extreme of measures. But as we start to see some more of these tests, there's both the, the antigen test that tests whether or not someone currently has the virus, but also the antibody test that sees whether someone has already had the virus. And I think that's going to help us develop new ways of operating. It may well be if you can have an effective antigen, antigen test, then those who are affected are isolated and anyone they've been in contact with is quickly, is quickly found and isolated as well, allowing other people that aren't infected to carry on under normal circumstances. What will be interesting if we get this antibody test that can determine whether someone's already had the infection uh, and whether or not they may then be immune to it, then these people can effectively continue going about the, their daily lives. And, and most importantly, it's the younger uh, element of the demographic. Those are less susceptible to the more extreme elements of the virus uh, that also the more, more, uh, more capable of supporting the economy. We could see those individuals being able to go back to work uh, a little sooner. And what are we seeing in other countries in comparison? Um, well, it starts in China. And interestingly, as we have these new uh, points of focus within the virus, China has been very effective in implementing very aggressive containment uh, in the key affected regions. New case growth is effectively zero and active cases are very low. That's what's allowed them to, to broaden out uh, and relax some of their, their restrictions. Um, I know some people have talked about the reliability of the data coming out of China and that is always some element of concern with economic data. Interestingly, though, we've seen it in other parts of Asia, particularly the likes of South Korea, who have been testing very aggressively. They seem to have a slightly lower fatality rate than we're seeing um, in, in Europe. Part of that might be demographics, but there is uh, an interesting point. It's largely conjecture at the moment, but there's some suggestion that previous exposure to, to SARS may have given those, those populations some, uh, some level of resistance as well. As we look at the second epicentre effectively in Europe, Italy has had a much higher fatality rate, but that does come with a much more aged population. Um, Italy does have one of the, the most oldest populations um, in the world. But even there, I talked a little bit before, it's the, gr the growth rate that's important. We've seen that steadily coming down. The daily growth rate in fatalities is now below 10%. So even though it's been hit quite hard, there are signs of, of it abating. Uh, and it's that pathway that we look to other countries to see if they're following. Certainly in the UK and the US, even though we are um, at the time of recording in quite a, a significant growth phase, it does seem to be following um, that, that progression that we've seen elsewhere, a rapid rise. But there are some tentative signs that, um, that, that the growth rate might be starting to moderate slightly around, around the edges. I think really that leaves a couple of key watch points. The first is in the US. The US now has the highest number of confirmed cases. And the US has also been relatively slow in terms of both its surveillance, but also its isolation me measures. It's been a lot more advisory from, from the federal authorities. Interestingly, though, if you compare it with, with Europe, even though President Trump might be taking a slightly more lax approach to these isolations, at a state and city level, there's a lot more power. And we are seeing tighter controls being implemented there, particularly in, in New York City, which is responsible for, for a significant proportion of US infections. Um, the other areas to watch are, are areas such as, um, such as Japan and Sweden. Sweden is seeing its infection rate tick up. 
they've taken a much more lax approach to containment. So it'll be interesting to see the direction that they head. And more broadly, we do stay alive to the potential for secondary uh, outbreaks uh, and further waves. These, these events are typified by several waves of infection. What we're hoping is each one of these waves gives us a diminishing return effectively on the infection rate. So those are the key points to keep an eye on. Thanks very much, Ben. Um, to come back over to you, Chris, can you talk a little bit more about the scenarios you, you mentioned earlier? Yeah, well, it's really related to that, um, those curves that, that Ben talked about and the, the containment process. Um, basically, the UK and the US have been late to embrace the, the containment strategy. And, you know, in China, um, their, their approach got the, the R ratio down to about 0.3, um, uh, and that's how they, they got on top of the virus. Um, so, but our base case is that most of the Western economies will, um, through um, a process of uh, learning and changing, will mirror the China experience, and they'll see a sharp but br- relatively brief plunge in output um, before rebounding. So kind of the same two-month time scenario in terms of beginning to end uh, before recovery. And that would, as Ben said, imply that we see a trough in activity in Europe in April and begin recovering. And that that recovery will be ahead of the US due to the containment policies that we've discussed. And the, but the trough in the US could be as late as mid-May. Um, they're obviously more and more uh, optimistic than that, but that that would be against the evidence. The um, so that is our basis case assumption, and you know the alternative scenario is um, you know lack of containment uh, and a much more protracted pandemic with a deeper and more permanent loss of output and jobs. And how likely do you think that second option is? Um, I think. No, it, it's very avoidable. That's the that's the important important thing. Um, and if pressed, I would say, uh, given the way that governments are responding and and learning on the hoof, as it were, um, I'd say it's less than twenty percent. Uh, I say a lot depends on the policy developments in the U.S. They seem to have changed quite radically um, at the federal level. Uh, over the last few days, and as Ben said, they seem to have um, significant and adequate controls in some of the major cities. But the markets are going to be very focused on those in uh, infection rates and wanting to see them stabilise. And assuming that the base case is is what happens, do we see a rapid recovery off the back of that? I think it probably does um, for markets once we've had enough evidence of stability in infections and. Uh, equities are likely to recover most of the lost ground under that base case scenario by year end, in my view. Um, From an economic point of view, the uh, recovery is probably going to be fairly slow and and stepwise. I don't think it's going to be a smooth progression as various elements of the supply chain and demand chain get back to normal. That's not going to be uh, something we're going to uh, it's going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen smoothly. But you know, we will be coming from a very low base in terms of output where the peak to trough uh, is likely to fall by double 
the amount we saw during the great financial crisis. So a, a fairly significant drop. Uh, um, but it, but that because of the policy responses we've seen, that's a relative success compared to what we saw during the Great Depression, um, which was essentially three times worse than that. So. Um, just to put it in the context of the UK, the UK is likely to see a 15% drop in GDP from peak to trough compared to 5% drop during the great financial crisis. And uh, and GDP for Europe and the US is still likely to be 8 to 10% lower um, at the end of this year than at the end of 2019. So it's it's quite a quite a significant impact, but the recovery should be um, quite quite significant as well. Obviously, there's been a lot of comparison between uh, between the two, the the Great Financial Crisis and and where we are today. Um, do you think the situation is worse now than it was then? Well, the the key question for Ben and myself is really is is not the depth. Um, it's it's the duration, and that's why the containment policies are so important. China has shown us that the impact uh, can be limited to two months with very you know, draconian policies, which basically shut down growth. So, in those, in that scenario, the, the the drop will be significant, but the duration is small and quite short. The emergency spending that's in place will bridge those gaps in an output and. You know, that by comparison to the GFC, the GFC really fundamentally damaged confidence and the financial system. I think it was much more, much deeper, much more structural. And here, the damage will probably set new records in terms of the statistics. But the recovery could also do the same um, if if we get the response right. Now, uh, we've had a lot of great input from Deutsche Bank on this. Um, that they've given some pretty good. Um, estimates on GDP impact. So places like Germany, for instance, GDP will be down 5.3% this year and then growing 5.5% in 21. Italy more likely to fall 9% before recovering 4%. Uh, and then you get extreme examples like China, which normally grows around just under 6%, expected to contract about 1.5%. But, and um, that is expected to um, double, basically, to uh, in terms of normal growth at 12% um, during the recovery. So it's, it's very much um, V-shaped in, in terms of uh, uh, it, uh, the GDP recovery over a reasonable time period. Thanks, Chris. I mean, obviously, once everyone's wrapped their heads around, around what's going on currently in markets, the next big question is, you know, how long do, and, and how long do we think these consequences are, are going to last? And, and will there be big lasting impacts of, of this? Yeah, I think that um, once we get through, you know, we deal with the emergency, we have to think about the longer term implications. And I've uh, been on a number of interesting uh, discussions about this with um, politicians and, and, and strategists. And I think it's it's too early to tell, but we do know for sure. One thing we know for sure is that governments will have a lot more debt, and that the fiscal deficits um, that we're looking at are essentially double that of the um, the deficits we saw during the financial crisis. Um, the um, well, from an interest rate perspective, we expect interest rates are going to remain very low for the foreseeable uh, future. Um, we may. Some people believe we've seen the peak in globalization, although I think 
others may realize that there's a benefit in not having all your eggs in one basket, i.e. all the production in one particular country, because as we've seen here, production recovers and, and gets hit at, in different time frames. So um, if you... Uh, if you have everything in one country, you you could be um, you could be hurt quite significantly. The taxes are likely to rise um, uh, to pay for all the spending um, once once we recover, and inflation it may may return because this spending is um, is quite material, um, and the and the central banks are are printing money. So, I think this crisis will essentially stress the. Uh, socio-political structure of um, democracy, and particularly in Europe, um, where there's been um, there's been no unilateral, no no coordinated strategy. Um, it, essentially, countries have been left to on their own, um, and I think they'll have a have to look um, quite hard at um, the the um, the structure of Europe once we get through this crisis. Thanks, Chris. Just to turn to you, Ben, quickly, um, how should investors be thinking about their portfolios and, and how best to navigate through this if, if you're already invested in markets? Well, I mean, absolutely, it has been a painful time uh, recently for those that are already invested. Uh, many people and team, myself included, have significant amounts invested in our own products. So so we, we feel that as well. But the important thing to do is to really focus on the long term and look to the future. And as we stand at the moment, you know, a lot of bad news is already in the price. And I think it's almost impossible to try and time the bottom of any market move, particularly as we move through through these cycles. Um, but certainly, I think we are now much closer to the bottom than to the top. Uh, and I think we've got pretty high conviction that equities are likely to be higher in 12 months' time than they are now. In fact, if you look at the analysis, particularly the analysis that Chris and the team has carried out, the risk reward ratio now looks at in, in favour of equities by about five to one. So that basically means on a sort of realistic outlook, you could potentially see maybe 10% falls further from here on the medium term. But also the upside is more of the order of uh, sort of 50% upside. So on a probability weighted basis, given that you can't time markets, it does look know an attractive an attractive environment to be putting money to work and i also think the experience of late march uh, particularly we saw those very significant short-term rallies intraday u.s market rallied from its low up around 20 percent uh, during the course uh, of late march it does help reinforce the message that we put out before that very often the best days come after the worst days so trying to aggressively time these movements can be can be quite quite dangerous so what I would say, those who are invested need to focus on the long term, make sure that you are exposed to the right level of risk in your portfolio that will allow you to take advantage of that recovery uh, trajectory. Uh, but also, I think if you have money on the sidelines, a lot of people will be thinking, do I want to put money in? I think it always makes sense to phase money in over time. So that is putting a proportion in over a few weeks or months. That allows you to average out your entry point uh, and really move through as you get these sort of local mini, uh, maxima and uh, minima. And I think really it's it's just about recognising investing is about a long-term activity. And from here, we really do see an upward trajectory. We do expect a few bumps along the way. So the important thing, don't get panicked by the bumps, just focus on the long-term return potential. 
Thanks very much, Ben. And and thanks, Chris, for, for all your comments. Um, some really quite positive takeaways from this. Uh, when you read the press and all you see is is doom and gloom, it's sometimes hard to focus on on the on the positives that, that will come along eventually. Uh, thank you both for your comments. We'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. And thanks for listening.